0: Acts chapter 13 is the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey as described in the book of Acts. We've looked last time at the very start of that ministry where Paul and Barnabas went from Antioch in Syria, about 16 miles to the coast, the Mediterranean coast, to a place known as Seleucia. It was there in Seleucia that they found a ship heading for the island of Cyprus, about a 75-mile journey across the Mediterranean Sea. They landed on the eastern side of that island. paradise. Cyprus was then, and apparently it's not quite so much that way now, but then it was a very beautiful place. And uh, there was a large city on the eastern coast of the island of Syria. That's where they first began the ministry, and they went to the synagogues, plural, in that city. Uh, And during that time, they were able to witness in that city of Salamis to very many Jews and proselytes. And there were a large number of people, apparently, that heard the gospel, were not told of the results of that ministry there in that eastern city of Salamis. But they went from there, across the island to the western side, to a city known as Pathros. and it was Pathos where they had met with the governor of the entire island. He was a Roman counselor, and it was he who was mentioned by Luke in this great book of Acts that had a miraculous salvation experience. And I'm reminded, I think that I mentioned it the last time, that Sergius Paulus, the name of this Proconsul had a son who was also a governor in another territory northeast of where this man was, and he was there in the territory of Pisidia, in the city known as Antioch of Pisidia. Now, it's not the same as Antioch in Syria, where Paul and Barnabas started their missionary journey, but it is a destination in what is now known as. Turkey, in that area then known as Asia Minor, and he was headed from the island of Cyprus to that city of Antioch in Pisidia. It was a Roman city. It was very well known and very, very well populated in that day. And again, he's on his way for the sole purpose, along with Barnabas, and Barnabas's cousin or nephew, depending on your translation, John Mark. So they leave the island of Cyprus. They go by boat, obviously, to the southern shore of what is now modern-day Turkey, to a place called Perga. And that's where the story now picks up as we move forward in this text in the book of Acts. Chapter 13, beginning with verse 13, where it tells us now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John which again is John Mark, it's the one that we know of as Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Remember, John is the son of Mary, in, whom they, they, in whose house they actually had a ministry in the early days of the church in Jerusalem. Mark had gone with them, but now they get to this place in Pisidia, And for some unknown, unexplained reason, John Mark decides that he's got to go back to Jerusalem. Perhaps there was a a good reason for this, but the general assumption is that there must have been some kind of a dispute that caused a division. And we see that later on in the book of Acts as being the most likely scenario. But we're not told by Luke why he left, just simply that he did. And it's from this point on that the ministry that's described by Luke, is described with regard to Paul as the leader. Up until this point, it was Barnabas and Saul. Now Saul takes his Roman name, Paul, and he is now heading with his entourage, together with Barnabas, there were others with him, because there's a a company that associates themselves with Paul, perhaps from the synagogues that they had already visited. He's bringing some of those people along with him. We're not told exactly, but there's a more than just two people involved in this first missionary journey. It's a company of men that are following him. It says in verse 14, but when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. So again, here they have arrived at this very large city in northern Turkey, in the territory then known as Pisidia, and the very first thing that they do is they enter into a synagogue. Obviously, it's on a Saturday that they're being presented here as arriving in the synagogue, and there is a synagogue service going on. They always met on Saturdays. They typically would read from the law and from the prophets, and then they would invite any guests that might be present to speak if they have something that they want to share. They recognized Paul and Barnabas as being someone, or a couple at least, of men who had never been there before. Perhaps they were able to identify Paul because of his... Uh, robe that he wore which would have identified him as a pharisee that is a possibility or they might have introduced themselves saying uh hi i'm barnabas from jerusalem you're from jerusalem we've heard a lot of things going on in jerusalem you you need to tell us about what's going on anyway they did indeed have that finally opportunity in that synagogue to share something about what god would had put on their heart it was a very common thing that they would do and this was a very very Great opportunity for Barnabas and Paul to share what they had been experiencing. But it's Paul who now takes the lead, and it's Paul who is going to be speaking. And it's here in this passage that we'll be looking at here this morning, where Luke records for us, one of only a few messages that Paul actually gives in all of his missionary journeys. It's the first one recorded. It's rather lengthy, and it follows along the same pattern as the message that Stephen had been given so many years earlier. Remember, Paul was there when Stephen was giving that very message, and it's very, again, similar to what he is now presenting to this group of Jews and proselytes in the city of Antioch of Pisidia. So they've arrived at the synagogue, and again in verse 15 it tells us what I've just described. After the reading of the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue said to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. I find that quite interesting, by the way, he use the word exhortation. Remember, Barnabas is translated son of exhortation or son of encouragement. And so you would have thought perhaps by that invitation that perhaps maybe Barnabas would say, Hey, that's me. But he did not. He conferred to Paul. And Paul is the one who responds. It says in verse 16, Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Listen up. I've got a very dear pastor who's retired from the ministry now, but my mentor... In his messages, almost every Sunday, he would say to the congregation, Now listen up. And that's what Paul is saying. Listen up. Pay attention. He wants people to hear what he is about to share. And that's a good thing for pastors to do. Wake up, people. Listen to what God is saying to the church today. So if there's anybody here that hasn't been listening, now I guess we know that you are. Listen up, Paul said. Verse 17 says, Now, Luke quoting Paul and giving, again, at least a part of what Paul had said in this sermon, this very first recorded sermon. We don't know for certain whether it was the entirety, but it seems like it was indeed. At least most of what Paul had said, Luke, by the Holy Spirit's anointing, has recorded it for us. And Paul says these things beginning in verse 17. The God of this people Israel... Chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. He's starting from Moses. Not Abraham, but he's starting from Moses. The beginning of the delivery of the people of Israel from slavery. Very good place to start. They were in bondage. He's going to share how that progressed through time in a way that would glorify the Lord God in the saving of many souls. It says in verse 18, now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. I should say so. It was actually longer than that that he had to put up with them, by the way. If you continue to read the book of... Joshua and the book of Judges after the books of Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you will find that the people of God were never, ever consistent in their worship of their God. But here he's talking about just the 40 years in the wilderness. They wandered in the wilderness and they were not doing the things that God had intended for them to do. It troubled God, but he bore with them. He knew that they were just men and women who uh, needed a little bit of encouragement, and he could have judged them in the wilderness, but he chose not to. That's his grace. That's his mercy at work. Verse 19 says, And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. Now he's going through the entire book of Joshua in just one sentence. That's what happened. They conquered all the Various nations in the land of Canaan which became the nation of Israel as we know it today he distributed their land by lot and that's also something of great importance Joshua and two or three other men with him chose to use lots in that distribution of the land but it says here God is the one who ultimately made the choice for them by that choosing of lots. So God was in the casting of lots in that particular case and in other places as well. The uh, book of Proverbs tells us that it is by the casting of lots that decisions are made. It's a good thing. And it was then a very, very common method of determining the will of God. Well, verse 20 continues and says, After that he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. That now takes care of the entire book of Judges. We're studying the book of Judges in our midweek services on Thursday nights. And we're not going through very quickly, but Paul just chooses to zip right through and only mentions the fact that he gave them these Judges for about that period of time of 450 years. And one of the things that stands out in my mind in the book of Judges is this. They did what was right in their own eyes. Over and over and over again, we see that phrase. There are seven times of apostasy mentioned in the book of Judges. This is a remarkable book of God's mercy and grace. Again, patience of the loving kindness of our Lord expressed through those pages of the book of Judges. Verse 21 says, And afterward, they asked for a king. This is at The time of Samuel, remember? They came to Samuel, the last of the judges, and they said, we want a king like all of the other nations around us. That really caused Samuel a great deal of discouragement and disappointment in the people. And he came to the Lord. He wept over this decision that they had made. But God had said to Samuel, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They have rejected me. But he gave them their king as they had requested And afterward, they asked for a king, it says, and so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Saul ruled in Israel for 40 years. It was not God's choice, but God allowed this to take place. To prove them, to show to them that there was to be a king, but it would be on his terms and by his choosing, not by theirs. But it cost him 40 years of very, very difficult and troubled times under the rule of Saul as a Benjamite reigning over the people. He started out well, by the way. Oh, but he ended miserably. And God judged him. In verse 22 it tells us, "Then when God had removed him, Saul, he raised up for them David as king. To whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. That one verse combines several different passages of Scripture. You can find some of that data uh, of this particular message that Paul just gave in Psalm 79. And you can find more of it in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah First uh, Samuel rather, 13, they all speak of David as being the one who is the son of Jesse, a man after God's own heart, and a man who does God's will. Now, if you think about David's record as a patriarch in Israel, he wasn't all that perfect, was he? In fact, none of these people that are mentioned were perfect, but they were used by God. And again, in a study that we are in, in the book of Judges, I'm mindful of the fact that the man whose name is Samson, everybody knows Samson because of his great prowess, his great strength, but he was terrible. And why would God choose a man like Samson? A wicked person, really, in all ways. He didn't care for the things of God, although he was born in a very miraculous way and he was to be a Nazarite all of his life he completely disregarded the Nazarite vow that should have been on his heart daily he defiled himself with women he defiled himself by touching dead bodies he was not very godly david Well, he was godly, for certain. You go through the book of Psalms and you see so many wonderful things that David himself had written. And he did indeed love the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But David sinned. David sinned with Bathsheba. David sinned by having Uriah killed. David sinned by having the people numbered. He was not perfect. And there were consequences to his sin. But yet here... And elsewhere, we find that God's view of David is that he was a man after God's own heart. That speaks volumes to me. I hope it does to you as well. None of us have to be perfect in order to be used by the Lord. We must keep that in mind. He found David, the son of Jesse. He chose David, and he used David wonderfully in this particular time of Israel's history. It tells us in verse 23, from this man's seed, David's seed, According to the promise, there was a promise made to David. It was a covenant that God had made through the prophet Nathan that God would raise up for Israel a Savior. And then Paul names that Savior Jesus. He's very forthright. He makes no hesitation in his presentation that this promise that was given to David by the prophet Nathan was fulfilled in the man whose name was Jesus of Nazareth. And then he talks about another individual in their contemporary period of time known as John the Baptist. Now apparently they must have known of John even though they lived far away from Jerusalem. But they were Jews and the word would travel about the things that were going on in Jerusalem throughout the entire Roman Empire. And so Paul has no hesitation here in talking about the man named John, in a way that they must have understood or known of. It tells us in verse 24, after John had first preached, before his coming, the coming of Jesus, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. That was John's ministry, having them realize that they needed to repent of their sins and turn to God. And he spoke to the people of Israel, and you all know the story of John the Baptist. It tells us verse 25, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? John the Baptist speaking. I am not he, thinking that, of course, they were asking, Who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you that prophet? He said, No, I'm not he. I'm not that one. But, behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose." That was exactly what the Bible tells us John said in the gospel record. Paul was aware of these things and so were all of these people who he was speaking to at the time. They must have known. They must have been familiar with that story. Even those words that John had spoken with regard to the fact that he was not the Messiah, but there was one coming after him whose sandals he was not worthy to unloose. Verse 26 says, Men and brethren. Now this is, again, a very, very... Common way for Paul to address people who he wants to associate with. hes Their brothers, he's, he's associated with them through their faith in God, through their heritage as Jews. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. He's talking to Jews and Gentiles alike, who are probably proselytes attending the synagogue in Antioch, Syria. All of you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. So Paul is now saying, David was promised that there would come a Savior in Israel. And this salvation, that salvation that has been promised, has arrived in the name of Jesus Christ. God has sent him. And so he says in verse 26, For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voice of, of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him." There were particular scriptures that were given in the Old Testament that spoke of his death. Isaiah 53, he had to die. Psalm 22, he had to die in exactly that way that is prescribed in those verses and many, many others. I love reading Psalm 22 as a reminder of what Jesus did for us on the cross. When the very words that begin that psalm say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It reminds me of the fact that those are the very words that Jesus spoke on the cross. And I believe He spoke those words to point the way for the Pharisees and scribes and all who were in attendance at his crucifixion to recognize the fact that he's quoting Psalm 22. And many of them, I believe, went to that psalm to find out why he did so. And in that psalm they would find, they pierced my hands and my feet. My bones are not broken. My tongue clings to my jaw. It was a perfect description of that which happens to an individual who is crucified. Make no mistake, I believe quite sincerely and i hope that you understand why if you read that psalm you see jesus crucifixion in that psalm isaiah 53 so remarkable about the fact that he was to die on behalf of the sins of the world all we are like sheep we've gone our everyone our own way but he was despised by god And over and over again throughout that Psalm 53 and also in Psalm 51 and 52, there is mention of the terrible things that he had to suffer. Paul is reminding the people in that synagogue in Antioch, Pisidia, these things are written in the books of the Old Testament. He fulfilled them in in being condemned by the Jews in that day. They were complicit in the fulfilling of all the prophecies that spoke of his death. But he goes on to say further, And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, he says all that was written, every detail that was written about Christ was indeed fulfilled by Christ. He had no control over the fact that they would cast lots over his garments. But that's what they did. Amazing thing when you look at all the various prophetic statements in the Old Testament and see how they were perfectly fulfilled in everything that He had done. They all spoke of Him. But then finally, He tells us, now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. But God... Oh, there it is again, my favorite two-word phrase, but God... I'm so grateful those words are in the Word of God. But God raised Him from the dead. Make no mistake... The Father raised Jesus from the dead. But also make note of the fact that we're told elsewhere that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And also we're told by Jesus Jesus himself that he would raise himself from the dead. How can that be? Which one is it? Yes. All of the above. God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Godhead. Three in one. The Trinity. God raised him from the dead. Verse 31 says, He was sent, or seen rather, for many days by those who came up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem. He's talking about the disciples who followed Him, not just the twelve apostles, but the very many disciples who were with Him. They saw Him. They came and they recognized after He was raised from the dead that He was indeed in a glorified body, able to be touched, to hear His voice, to see Him stand before them proclaiming the good news. And that's what Paul is saying here. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you, Paul is saying, this is what we want you to understand, those of you who are here in this synagogue setting, we declare to you glad tidings. That's just another phrase that is used for the word gospel. Gospel means glad tidings, good news. We're here to declare to you the gospel, glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that He has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, this is Psalm 2 verse 7, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. He uses that passage in Psalm 2 To speak of the resurrection of Christ, not the birth of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection is where God acknowledges that Jesus, the Son, has been begotten by the Father for a particular purpose. He has been assigned a particular purpose in the plan of God. Today, he says, you are my Son, I have begotten you. But then he goes on to quote another Verse, He says in verse 34, And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Now he's quoting Isaiah 55, verse 3. Paul knew the Scriptures so, so very well. He didn't have to take his iPad and do a search for these various words to find out what the passage was to identify what he wanted to say. He knew them just because... He was a student of the Word. And friends, it is a very good thing to be students of the Word. The Bible tells us to study to show yourselves approved under God. He's not just talking to pastors here. He's talking to all of us. Study to show yourself approved under God, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed in the King James. But you don't have to be ashamed if you are familiar with what the Word of God declares. If you have made it your life Ministry to study His Word and to know what His Word declares. You can't go wrong with this. Paul was a student of the Word of God. And there are many, many Scriptures that he just simply is able to quote. Peter did the same thing, by the way. Peter was just a layperson. He wasn't a Pharisee. He was a fisherman. And yet, you go through the first several chapters of the book of Acts and you see how much Scripture that man did know amazing to me. Now, I don't have a problem referring to certain scriptures from time to time, but I can't give you verse and chapter very often. I can every once in a while. There are a few that I have memorized, but I'm not that good at memorization. But I can tell you this. I've hid God's Word in my heart. Just like David said, I have hid your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And that's my goal. I count God's word as the most precious thing I can have. God's word is precious to me. And I know it was to Paul and to Peter and to others. It should be to all of us. He raised him from the dead. He said, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Verse 35, he quotes another psalm. Then he goes. He says, therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. That's Psalm 16, verse 10. Peter quoted that in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. To say the same thing, Peter and Paul were in agreement with regard to the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And each one of them would use those three events, his death, burial, and resurrection, to proclaim what they called the gospel message. It can only be the gospel if all three of those events are included in that concentrated effort by the person who is speaking for God to include those three things to make the message of the gospel complete. Paul is doing so here. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. So note again how many verses of Scripture that he has quoted in this synagogue setting, in this very relatively short message. Paul could have have put these words before them in a matter of five to maximum of ten minutes perhaps. That's a powerful message because it, it contains all three components of the gospel. He continues in verse 36, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. His body was put in the grave, and his body did deteriorate. That's what happens to bodies when they're put into the grave. They're no longer alive. The bodies have no more ability to function. There's no more breath. There's no more life in those bodies. They become decaying. Quickly, especially in the heat of that particular region of the world. So he saw corruption, but he, verse 37, whom God raised up, saw no corruption. He raised him on the third day. There wasn't time enough for that kind of corruption to actually have been taking place in Jesus' body, in his case. So he never did see corruption. David did. So David obviously wasn't speaking of himself, was he? That's what Peter had said. That's what Paul is saying. He was not speaking of himself when he talked about the fact that he would see corruption. But your Holy One, the one that he was speaking of, would not see corruption. That's, again, Jesus Christ. So he makes his conclusion now in verse 38 where he says, Therefore... As a result of all that I have said, because of what you have heard me speak with regard to the various promises in the Old Testament Scriptures, with regard to the history of the Jewish people throughout their time from Moses until the present day, therefore let it be known to you, brethren. Again, a term of endearment with regard to their heritage as sons of Abraham. Let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, this man Jesus, is preached to you, The forgiveness of sins. That's what salvation is all about. Salvation comes to those who expect that their sins should be forgiven when they receive the salvation that is promised by God. And that's what has been recorded here for us, that Jesus has been the fulfillment of all that God had said regarding salvation. He is indeed the Savior of the world and He has come indeed for the forgiveness of sins. By Him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. These were Jews he's talking about. They believed in the law as being that which was necessary to come close to God. Paul is here saying the law couldn't do this. The law is a schoolmaster. The law tells us that we are sinners and we need to have a way of salvation, but the law cannot provide that way of salvation. That is the message of the New Testament gospel record. He tells us two things here. Forgiveness of sins in verse 38 and justification in verse 39. They're not the same. Forgiveness of sins is something that takes place when we begin to come to a place where we know that we are sinners and we go to God and we ask for forgiveness and He gives it. In the Old Testament sense, forgiveness of sins was a covering of their sin through their offering up of a sacrifice. Now we have God who has already taken care of the sacrifice Issue by having Christ become our sacrifice once for all, and He no longer requires a daily sacrifice because that one sacrifice was all that was needed by the Lord to do what God intended to do with regard to sin. He purges us from our sin. That's what forgiveness is. He has purged us from our sins, or purged our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. That was promised in the Old Testament. It could not have been fulfilled until Christ died on the cross. So that forgiveness is available to us. Justification is a one-time-in-our-life experience. You are justified. In other words, God's Word, and we use the word justified in the English translation. It's a good translation, by the way, of the original Greek word that is used, but if you think about the word justified, break it down. Just if I'd never sinned. So it's not that he only forgives you of your sin. That's forgiveness. But justification is, he doesn't even recognize that you ever did. That's powerful. That's what the difference is between forgiveness and justification are. They're similar, but they're not the same. Because we continue to sin in these mortal bodies, As long as we have breath, we are sinners by nature. But we have a promise that when we do sin, we can go to our Father, confess our sins. And He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we are justified at the moment of conversion. That's a one-time experience for all of us. He's justified you so that no matter what you may do, From that point on, as long as you continue to serve your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and seek to do His will, it pleases Him to forgive you of all your sins. So he says now in verse 40, a warning. Knowing that you have been forgiven, knowing that you have been justified, the warning comes, beware therefore lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. And now he quotes Habakkuk. Chapter 1, verse 5, Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. That's terrible, but that's the way the Jews responded, for the most part, to this gospel message. Why? Because they blinded their eyes. They stuffed their ears so they could not see, they could not hear. Many did believe, many did come to faith, but those who did not are the recipients of that which Habakkuk has spoken in this great prophetic word in the first chapter of his great book. There are many in the world today who have heard the gospel, but they have not believed. You know many by name. But there are still some, I believe, who will turn to faith in Jesus Christ, who will respond to the gospel message. But the warning still remains. I'd like to end our time together with a really sad commentary with regard to that group of churches in the region that Paul is ministering to here in Antioch. We'll find out in chapter 14 that he goes on from Antioch to several other cities in that region of Pisidia. In that region of Pisidia, in that territory of Pisidia, the region that they are in is the region known as the Galatian region. Galatia was a small region that encompassed several cities in the territory of Pisidia. Paul is going to go to several of them, and we'll see that as we continue on in our study in the book of Acts, that when he goes there, he gives the same message. But after the missionary journey that he is on in this particular part of the book of Acts, he comes back to Antioch in Syria, and he begins then to go on a second missionary journey. And it is apparently on his second missionary journey that he writes a letter to that group of churches in Galatia. We know it as the letter to the Galatians. Makes good sense, doesn't it? Galatians is the only New Testament letter that isn't written to a city of churches, but it is a group of cities. Again, it's a region. But here in Galatians chapter 3, I'd like to end with a sad thing that took place as Paul had given them this wonderful message. Now in chapter 3 of the book of Galatians, writing to them after such a short period of time, he speaks these words. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? He goes on to speak very negatively about the things that they allowed to happen in the region of Galatia. Many, many times... During Paul's missionary journeys, he would bring the word of the gospel to a region like Galatia, to a church or synagogue, churches weren't established then, but to the synagogues in the territories where he visited, and over and over again, he was immediately followed by Judaizers, faithful Jews, believing they were doing God's will, were certain that the only way that Gentiles could come to faith truly would be if they followed the commands of the law. And so they followed after Paul after having received the gospel. These Judaizers came back in and said, no, you're not really saved unless you're circumcised. You have to obey the dietary laws. You have to obey all of the various commands that God had spoken through Moses. We are faithful Jews, and we're here to tell you that Paul is wrong, that you need to do these things in order to have true salvation. They followed after Paul, and they confused the people and many other people, Gentiles and Jews alike, were convinced that Paul hadn't given them all they needed to know. It was Jesus plus something else. My friends, it's the same thing today. There are many in the world today who are saying, Jesus is okay, but you need to do this. Jesus isn't enough. You need to obey this. You have to go through this ceremony. You have to be involved in this particular organization in order to align yourself with the truth of God's word as is presented to our founding fathers. You know who they are, you know there are many organizations out there that are crippling the church and despising the true gospel by proclaiming that there's Jesus Christ plus some other thing. Whatever form it may take, it's wrong. Paul was warning the people in Galatia on that first missionary journey, pay attention to what Habakkuk has said. I'm warning you, beware of those things that will turn you away from the truth. And by the time he comes around writing this letter to the Galatians, they had already turned away. Friends, the time is near that God is going to send His Son, and we will... Be caught up together with Him in the air as it has been declared. But I want you to understand we need to be very careful as we continue to serve Him that we do not stray from the truth of His Word. Don't drift away from your faith. That just simply means relax, everything's okay, I don't have to do anything. And you find yourself just drifting further and further away. From the things of God because you're not focused. You're not trying to do God's will. You're not concerned about what the Word of God says. This is important to me. It should be also important to every one of you. I am here to say, as Paul said, this warning, don't stop what you have begun. Don't stop believing His truth. Don't stop doing His will. Don't stop loving Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't be carried away by every wind of doctrine. Continue to stand on that solid rock. Continue to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Continue to be led by the Spirit of God in truth and you will be able to stand in him in his presence and hear his words well done good and faithful servant that's what i want for all of us